Nikitami. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, Lord, now as we come to the time of worshiping you through hearing your word, Lord. Lord, it's through the power of your word, your word, that transformation comes. Father, let us hear your word today. Let your Holy Spirit be upon us to truly hear your word and apply it to our lives, Lord, so that day in and day out we may worship you in the way that we live. This I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, turn with me to Philippians. Continuing our study in Philippians, Philippians chapter 4, looking at verses 1 through 3 this morning. We're drawing down close to the conclusion of the book of Philippians. as We are discovering joy, discovering joy, as this been, has been the, the major theme of the book. Paul wants this church, as he wants us, uh, to discover the joy, the lasting true joy that comes from knowing Christ Jesus alone. And so we've been looking at that, and now as he draws to the end of this, Paul, uh, he likes to do this in many of his letters. He, he ends with this little pithy kind of words, this pithy little commands, just bullet points of here's because of what I've said in the, the previous chapters, the previous paragraphs, because of all this now here, bullet point, bullet point, bullet point, bullet point, this is how you need to be in your life. And so we see that in chapter 4 as we draw to an end to Philippians. So if you will stand with me out of reverence for the reading of God's holy word. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Eudiah and I entreat Sintisha to agree in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you also, true companions, help these women who have labored, labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written or whose names are in the book of life. Amen. May the Lord add blessings to the reading of his holy, inspired, and inerrant word. And may he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. You may be seated. Well, as we look at our, our uh, little paragraph this morning... We are looking at standing, how to stand firm in spiritual unity. That's the, the major kind of uh, little command that Paul is giving us, the uh, imperative he gives us, stand firm. And that stand firm, I believe, is looking towards standing firm in spiritual unity. Now, there's a reason for all of this. You know, we have to recognize that we are in the midst of a great battle. There's a great battle happening right here in this place today. And this is not a battle that is against flesh and blood. 
No, in fact, if we, you remember, if you recall, our memory verse over the past uh, few weeks was back over in Philippians chapter 6, and the beginning of that long memory verse was Philippians chapter 6 verse 10, where Paul tells us of the battle that we face as followers of Jesus Christ day in and day out, a battle that I believe is taking place right here in this place. We can't see it, but it's there. And it's taking place. And he says here in Philippians, or Ephesians, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For, because... We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We are in a battle as the people of God. Satan is waging war on God and God's people, the community of God, the covenant community of God, the church. And as he is waging war against us, against God's people, we have to prepare ourselves for that. And so today, as we look at that and consider that, uh, we want to learn this, because Satan aims to divide the church Let us stand firm in spiritual unity. You see, that's one of the chief ways that Satan tries to attack the covenant community of God, the church, is he attacks the the church by attacking the unity of the church. He attacks the church by attacking the unity. He wants to divide us. Therefore, because Satan aims to divide the church, let us stand firm in unity spiritual unity. And I think that's at the heart of this command that Paul gives us in this little paragraph here in verses 1 and 3 of chapter 4. So as we look at this then and kind of break this down, the first thing that we need to note here is that as followers of Jesus Christ, as the church, as the covenant community, we must be aware of Satan's divisive scheme. We must be aware of Satan's divisive scheme. We see that here in that first verse, in verse 1 of chapter 4. Therefore, my my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Boy, doesn't he have a heart for this people. Do you get Paul's heart for this church? He loves this church, and he doesn't want to see this church fail and fall, and so he writes to encourage them to stand firm, to stay on course with their walk with God. Now, we notice here that, stand, that, that therefore, right at the beginning, right? And we, we know that when we see a therefore, we have to look and see what it is there for. And so you have to back up a little bit to see what he is talking about here. And you remember the last verse of, uh, or the last paragraph of chapter 3. Starting in verse 17, Paul says, Brothers, 
Join in imitating me and keeping your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Get that? Many of whom I have told you and now tell you with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, stand firm. So as we think about the whole, the whole idea that Paul is driving, it comes from that context of warning them, that whole context that, that began at the beginning. Beware, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, and ended with that, uh, there are those who I've told you and now tell you even with tears who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. There's these enemies that Paul has warned us about, and he says, in light of these enemies then stand firm you see we have to understand Satan's divisive scheme Satan has a divisive scheme he wants to to come into the church and cause division cause strife within the church and one of the ways that Satan causes division and strife within the church is first of all by implanting agents of division by implanting agent, agents of division. That's what he was talking about. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. These people who I tell you now with tears who, who walk as enemies of Christ. You see, these people that he is talking about here, they're not like the, the outsiders, you know, coming in, bringing, uh, you know, just some kind of crazy teaching. No, they are, they are people who were a part of the church, uh, and they are claiming Christ, right? You remember that. They're claiming Christ. They're saying, yes, salvation is by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, but then they add that but, it's also by your works. You see, they have all the right language. They, they know the lingo. They, they know all the things. They look like Christians. They act like Christians. But they're not preaching the true gospel. They're saying salvation is of the Lord plus your work of the law. Paul says they are enemies of the cross. Of Jesus Christ you see Satan comes in and he implants agents of division people who know the know how to walk the walk and talk the talk they've been here in the church for years and years and years but their heart is not with the Lord they're still following their king, king of this age, Satan. Jesus tells us of these people 
In Matthew's Gospel, Matthew uh, chapter 13, verse 24, he, he begins the parable of the weeds. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in, the, in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also and the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, do you not sow, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first. Bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into the barn. And then later on in that chapter, in verse 36, he gives the explanation of that parable. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came and said to him, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And he answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His, out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Who, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. You see, in today's church... I would say probably even in this church. There are those who are in the church who are implants of Satan. Their heart is not with God. They're walking according to the way of Satan. They know the language. They walk the walk. They talk the talk. But their heart is not with God. And they are here to cause strife and division. To stir it up. Stir it up. Stir it up. We need to be aware that Satan implants agents of division even within God's church. We need to be aware of that. Just like the dogs, the evildoers, the mutilators of the flesh, there are those who are implants of Satan's, of Satan. Second, Satan also causes division by causing strife among the saints. See, it's not just those implants that cause division among the saints. Satan also likes to come in and tempt the saints to, to cause division, cause strife among the saints themselves, those who do walk according to God's Word. That's why he talks about them here. you got Uadiah and Sentitia. 
And, and these women, Paul says, by his, what he is saying, we can imply that these women, they, they are, they're in conflict with one another. We don't know what the conflict is. Who knows what it is? But they are in conflict with one another, and, and this conflict is causing division within the church. Now, Paul says these are, are godly saints. These are women who, whose names are written in the book of life. He, he says there at the end of, of verse 3, he describes these women. These are women who have labored side by side with me, with Paul, in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. But that word there for fellow workers, that's the same, same term that Paul uses for people like Timothy, Aphroditus, Titus, um, and Apollos. So these women have worked side by side in the gospel. Paul has seen the fruit of the kingdom that these ladies have borne in their life. Yet, they have allowed Satan to come in and cause division between them, strife between them. We need to be aware that Satan, that's one of his ways of causing division within the church. He, he gets into the, the minds of the saints and tempts them to have arguments and disputes and, and be divided. I mean, think about it. How many churches have you heard of splitting over the color of the curtains? How ridiculous. But Satan uses such small things cause division within the church. And, and what does that do to the church? What does it do to the testimony of the church? Paul wants to cause strife. He wants to cause division within the church because if he can cause division and strife within the church, he can mar the testimony of the church to the world. That's his aim. That's what he wants to do. He wants people to look at the church and think, huh, why do I want that? And so Satan wants to cause strife. He wants to cause division so that our testimony as the body of Christ, our testimony might be marred with the rest of the world. A missionary by the name of Stanley Jones once met Mahatma Gandhi and asked Gandhi this. He said, Mr. Gandhi, though you quote the words of Christ often, why is it that you appear to so adamantly reject becoming his follower? To this, Gandhi replied, Oh, I don't reject Christ. I love Christ. It's just that so many of you Christians are so unlike Christ. If Christians would really live according to the teachings of Christ as found in the Bible, all of India would be Christian today. Satan loves to mar the testimony of the church so that when outsiders look in at the church, they look at it and say, uh-uh, I don't want what they've got. We need to be aware of Satan's divisive scheme his scheme wanting to divide the people of God. 
So then we must stand firm in spiritual unity. Because of Satan's divisive scheme, we must stand firm in spiritual unity. One way to do that is to seek an attitude of spiritual unity. To seek an attitude, to, to strive for a, an attitude of spiritual unity, personally and within the whole corporate body of Christ. We see there in verse 2, I entreat Udiah and I entreat Sentisha to agree in the Lord. He is pleading with these ladies. That's what entreating means. I, I plead with them. I plead with you. Please, ladies, please agree in the Lord. Now that word for agree there is the Greek word uh, thraneo. And, and that word thraneo means to have a certain attitude or a disposition. It's the same word that is used back there in, in chapter 2, verse 5, when Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Same word. Have this mind, have this attitude, an attitude that Christ displayed and had when he walked this earth. Have this attitude. Ladies, get this attitude of unity about you and agree Come together. Quit the strife. Quit the division. We are to have the mind of Christ, the attitude of Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. He emptied himself. Came like a servant. And he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on the cross. Christ had an attitude of humility. And if we want to stand firm in spiritual unity, then we must have an attitude of humility. That's where it begins. You see, because here's the thing that divides when we get to arguing and bickering among ourselves. We don't want to talk it out. No, I think this is right. And I'm going to stick to my guns all the way through. I think the curtain should be red. And someone else over here says, I think the curtain should be green. And I'm not going to give up what I think. And you see, we don't want to humble ourselves so that we can begin to talk to one another. And come in unity in making decisions. See, pride causes us to stay divided when strife and conflict comes in. It doesn't mean that we, we don't occasionally disagree about this, that, and the other. We do disagree. I mean, that's just the human way. As long as there's sin in the world, we're going to disagree. But the thing is, if we come to the disagreements with an attitude of humility... My pride is on the back burner because the main thing is that we can stay unified as a body of Christ. When we take an attitude of humility, then we can stand firm in spiritual unity. This also means that we must have an attitude of compromise. 
We must have an attitude of compromise. If we're going to be humble, then we also have to have this attitude of compromise. We have to to come together to give and take, and it doesn't all have to be my way, right? I can give, and we can compromise and, and come to agreement about things. Reminded of committee meeting that we were in not too long ago, and this committee, we were making a decision. And all the committee members brought in ideas, a lot of different ideas, and, and we talked about them. And one of the members even brought, made the point, it's okay for us to, to talk about and disagree with one another. But in the end, we're going to make a decision. We're going to vote. And once we vote and, and we decide, then when we go out of here, we're going out unified. No matter if my opinion, my thought got vote, the vote or not, we're going out unified. This is our decision. This is where we stand. Hand to hand, arm to arm, unified. You see, that's the spirit of compromise. That's an attitude of compromise. It doesn't have to be my way or your way, but we come together, we compromise so that we can come to a conclusion together. It's the same way when you talk about marriage, isn't it? It can't always be my way. I've got to give. I've got to give, and, and Mary Beth gives, and, and we come to compromises on things. That's the way it must be in the church. We must have an attitude of compromise. So we must seek an attitude of spiritual unity by having an attitude of humility, an attitude of compromise. And, and this last one, I believe, is, is kind of implied in here. We, we've got to have this, an attitude of forgiveness. An attitude of forgiveness because, man, we are going to sin against one another, aren't we? We're human. We're fallible. We're going to make mistakes. And we're going to offend one another. And at times we're going to sin against one another. And if we are unforgiving, then we are going to allow strife and and arguments to, to divide us. But we can't do that. We cannot do that. We have to have an attitude of forgiveness. And the way we can have an attitude of forgiveness is because of how much God has forgiven us in Christ. We were rebels against God. We deserve hell because of our sin, our rebellion, our offense against God. God. But God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins. That's how much He loved us. And when we trust in Jesus, God says, all of that offense, I forgive it. My Son has paid for it. No need to bring it up anymore. No need to dwell upon it. No need to, to bring it, throw it up in your face every, the next time you mess up. But God says, I forgive you completely because of your faith in my Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus tells in a parable, another parable in, in Matthew, Matthew chapter 18, verse 23 through 35, he, he tells of the parable uh, of the unforgiving servant. 
He had the master of the house, and the master of the house was selling his debts, and he brought in this, this servant, the servant who, who owed him, I believe it was about three years' worth of wages. And the, this servant came in to, to his master, and his master said, well, if you can't pay me, then I'm going to throw you in prison until you can pay the very last penny. And the servant falls upon his face before the master. He, he begs and he pleads, oh, master, please don't do this. Please don't do this. And the master has compassion against that servant. And he says, all right, I forgive you your debts. I forgive all of them. The, all three years' worth of wages, I forgive you. Write them as nothing. We're done. You're good. And then that servant goes out, and there was another servant who owed this servant about a day's worth of wages. And that servant chokes this other servant and throws him in prison. And when the master hears what that servant whom he was so compassionate for did to this other servant, he calls him back, back in. He says, because you had no compassion, and I'll have no compassion. And he throws him in prison. And Jesus says, thus it is with your Father who is in heaven. How can we who have been forgiven much not forgive? How can we who have been forgiven for so much fail to forgive one another of our little petty sins against one, each other? We must forgive. We must forgive. We must have an attitude of forgiveness. One of the ways that we overcome Satan's divisive schemes is to check our own attitude and seek the attitude of Christ, an attitude of spiritual unity. Another way that we stand firm in spiritual unity is this, to seek measures toward spiritual unity. To seek measures toward spiritual unity. To, to seek measures, to, to work on it, to, to look at ways as a, a corporate body to build in spiritual unity. How do we do this? And that's what he says here in verse 3. He tells them, yes, and I ask you also, true companions, help these women. Help them. Help them, church. Church, get involved here. Take action to help these women to resolve the conflict that they are having. Help them. As a church, we're to, to take steps towards measures, towards spiritual unity. When we look out at people in a church and we see strife and division taking place, we're not to just to sit back, but we're to, to take action towards spiritual unity. And the way that we do this, first of all, is by we, we must address divisive issues. We must address divisive issues. We can't just simply ignore things. That's, such a, that's, that's the human way to deal with things, isn't it? There's a problem, but we, hey, we really don't like uh, confrontation, so let's just ignore it. And maybe it will go away on its own. How well does that work? How well does that work in your marriages? When one spouse offends another in some way, 
And we just kind of kick it to the back burner. Well, I just ignore it. Now, some things we, we do. Well, it's no big deal. Let it bygones be bygones. That, that's love. But, but some things, they, they just get in there, and, and we don't address it. We ignore it. And, and what happens? It begins to fester and fester and fester. And, and then next thing you know, you're exploding. All of this build up, and you explode in anger. That's what happens when we ignore issues, ignore problems in our families and in the church. We can't allow issues to fester. This past week I was working on something, some wood, and and, uh, I happened to get a splinter. Got it right there. Big splinter. And it hurt. But it had broken off in there where I looked at it and I looked, I can't get that. I'm going to have to do a little digging here and I'm going to have to, to get it where I can get a hold of that splinter with some uh, um, tweezers and pull that thing out. And, you know, part of me is like, man, that's going to hurt. But, you know, if I left that splinter in there and let it fester, it would only start hurting more and more. And then it might have gotten infected. And then when I ha- wouldn't I have been in a mess? And so, yes, it hurt to to get in there and to to dig that thing out enough to get the tweezers on and pull it out. Yeah, it hurt. But it hurt a lot less than what it would have have hurt if I'd let that thing get infected, wouldn't it? But yet, that's how we handle divisions and strife within our families and within our church. We let them get in there. We let the splinters get in there and they dig in and they fester and they fester and they they fester until it hurts all the more to resolve the issue. Until division takes place and church splits happen. You see, we can't allow those issues to fester. We must as we are seeking measures towards spiritual unity, we must, we must, we must address divisive issues. Even when it hurts a little, we have to address them, confront them, so that we can begin to work through them and heal. So we must address divisive issues, and also we must work towards reconciliation. We must work towards reconciliation. It's not just enough to address the issue. We address it with the the attitude of of reconciliation, with the goal of reconciliation. All right, there's there's two people here. They're at odds with one another. We want them to come back together and be reconciled with one another. That's why Christ died on the cross. He died on the cross to reconcile us to God and to reconcile us to one another. How then can we sit here and stay divided amongst His people? We can't do that. We can't do that. We must always be working towards when strife comes into the church, when strife enters into our families, we must always have an attitude, a goal of reconciliation, wanting to reconcile relationships, not leaving them divided. You see, friend, it's not the absence of disagreements but the way we handle them that proclaims the greatness of the gospel. It's not the absence of the conflict. We're human and there's going to be conflict. 
There's going to be conflict. There's going to be conflict in our families. There's going to be conflict when there's this many people in a church. There's going to be conflict. When the world looks in, they see conflict. It's not the absence of conflict that speaks to the greatness of Christ. It's how we handle the conflict. How we work through the conflict. How despite the conflict, despite our sin against one another, we come together, we reconcile with one another in Christ Jesus. And we can look out at the lost world and say, yes, we have our problems. Yes, we have our our disagreements. Yes, we have our sin. But Christ died for us. He forgave us. Therefore, we can love one another and forgive one another and be reconciled to one another despite our sin and our failure. We must work always towards reconciliation. As a church, we can overcome Satan's divisive scheme by seeking measures toward unity. Are you seeking measures, walking in a way, taking steps toward following Jesus Christ and obtaining and keeping spiritual unity in this body? Stand firm Paul says, in spiritual unity. Because Satan aims to divide the church, therefore let us, let the church stand firm in spiritual unity, always striving for, always working for unity that proclaims the greatness of Christ. Let us rally behind this one battle cry for the glory of Christ Jesus our Lord. It's for His glory that we live. Not my glory. Not your glory. For His glory. When we live for His glory, we can stand firm in spiritual unity. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we recognize today and we confess, Lord, if it were not for Your grace, if it were not for Your Spirit working in us, Lord, we would never be able to obtain the unity that You call for in Your church, in Your Word. Lord, we thank You for the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ our Lord. The salvation that enables us to seek and stand firm in spiritual unity. Oh Lord, if there are those here today, maybe there are those here who are in conflict with a fellow brother and sister in Christ. Lord, I pray that today their hearts would be moved and they would work towards reconciliation. And Lord, it may be, very well may be,
that there are those here today they're not reconciled with you they don't know your salvation your saving grace I pray Father work in their hearts let them know the spiritual unity that you provide through Christ Jesus our Lord this I pray in Christ's name Amen. And may